Morning, church family. Thank you, Sharon, for reading the word. Let's pray again before we turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Father, we who are your people are grateful this morning that you, you not only forgive our sins and redeem us from slavery to them, but you usher us into your people. You usher us into a body. And Lord Jesus, you've not left us to our own devices. You've given us gifts. You've given your spirit who's come armed with gifts for your church to strengthen us to do the task that you left for us. Holy Spirit, your word that you inspired through human authors, we come to it for life. We come to it to hear you speak. We pray that you would strengthen Strengthen us this morning. And I pray for non-Christian friends, teenagers, children here this morning. We're so grateful they're here, and I pray that you would minister to them as well. Help them to see something of Christ this morning that they've not seen before. Help them to long to come to you, their source of rest, the only source of unconditional love, the only holy God. We look to you now in Christ's name. Amen. Some people, some preachers, say that the Christian life will be an easy one. But Jesus never said that. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, you're something different. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's John 15. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. John 16. Jesus said, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. John 16. A church is not a social club where we relax and enjoy life together. Jesus is not our shared hobby. A church is more like an organized underground resistance during a foreign invasion. Jesus saved us, but instead of us bringing immediately home with him, he leaves us in the world, a world that he knows is opposed to him. And he's left us here with a purpose. He's left us here so that we would be salt and light. He's left us here so that we would be a city on a hill. Living distinct from the world. All the while inviting our neighbors to turn from sin and to hope in Christ. Just as we his people have done. And to do our job in a world broken by sin. A world led by Satan and opposed to Jesus. We need to be unwavering in our life together. Paul envisions the church in Ephesians 4 as different members of the same body with Jesus Christ as our head, as our leader. And Paul envisions a steadfast, steadfast 
unwavering body. That's what's needed for the church to endure and to thrive in the world. That's what's needed for a church to serve the function that Jesus longed for us to serve in the world in which he called us out of, but left us in. But it's not as if Jesus left us with a to-do list and then crossed his arms and sat back to see how we would do. Now, Jesus is connected to his body. Jesus strengthens his body. Jesus is committed to the church. Jesus says, I'll give you what you need to do what I've asked. Jesus is our head, which we'll see in a moment. And so the main idea this morning, a church strengthened by Jesus can be an unwavering body. A church strengthened by Jesus can be an unwavering body. I see four tasks that Paul gives to the church inspired by the Spirit. And when we do these tasks, when we pursue these tasks, strengthened by Jesus our head, we will be an unwavering body in the world. And verses 7 through 10, exercise the gifts Jesus gave us. Exercise the gifts Jesus gave us. Paul has just told us in verses 1 through 6 of Ephesians chapter 4 that the church is unified. And then in verse 7, he introduces a qualifying statement. Look at verses 7 and 8 that Sharon read. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he, Christ, ascended on high, back to the Father, he led, host, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. We'll come back to the ascended part in a minute. But first notice that Jesus gives gifts. He distributes gifts. We see that at the end of verse 7. We see that again in verse 8. And notice that these gifts are in demonstration of God's grace. God's grace, that is his favor toward us, starts with forgiveness of sins, but it is far more expansive than that. Jesus has forgiven us and then ushered us into his family. And as family members, He's given us gifts. And though we are unified as one body, one temple, one building, one flock, one bride, though we're unified, he's given members individual gifts. He's given each of us gifts. And so though we're one church, we don't lose our individuality. God continues to call individuals from darkness into life by the power of his spirit. And Jesus gives each of his children gifts. So if you're a Christian, you've been given a gift or more than one. And we'll learn more about the function of those gifts in a moment. But first, Paul explains when we receive these gifts. When do these gifts come? Verse 8, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. Paul's going to explain this further in a second, but ascension is a reminder of victory. It's a picture of victory. To ascend to the throne is to assume royal authority, and Jesus' ascension signals that he's a victorious king. Now think back to me after Jesus was, think back with me about the time Jesus was arrested in the garden. And after he's arrested, he's brought to the home of the high priest, and it's a joke trial. The goal of the trial is to drum up evidence that would lead to a death sentence, but no charge will stick. There are plenty of false witnesses, but their stories are contradictory. And in frustration, the high priest of Israel stands up and he says in Mark 14 to Jesus, have you no answer to make? 
What is it that these men testify against you? But Mark tells us Jesus remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the blessed? Jesus says in Mark 14, 62, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is agreeing with the claim that he is, in fact, the eternal second member of the Trinity, and that he will, after his suffering and death, ascend back, return back, raise up to the throne victoriously, signaling his victory. Jesus knew that suffering and death would precede his deafening triumph and victory. Jesus would preach the gospel. He would die for his people, and then he would rise from the dead and commission the church to make disciples of the nations. And then he would return to the Father in victory. But this victorious return to the Father doesn't happen unless Jesus first descends to the earth. Look at verses 9 and 10. In saying this, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Verse 8 that we've just read is Paul's paraphrase of Psalm 68, verse 18. And now in verses 9 and 10, Paul interprets Psalm 68 for us in light of Christ. When Jesus ascended back to the Father after his resurrection, he sent the Spirit, the Helper, armed with gifts for the church. And in order to ascend back to the Father, Jesus first had to descend from the Father. And he had to descend from the Father in order to absorb sin's penalty, to defeat death, to deliver eternal life, and to restore us to God. And though Jesus has returned to the Father, he has not abandoned his people. He's left us with all we need to follow him through a world that has been broken by sin. So, if you are a Christian, do you see that part of the way that God loves you as one of his children is through Jesus giving you gifts. He's giving you a job. Do you see that Jesus has given you gifts to serve the church and the world? He's given you the ability to thrive and us the ability to thrive together in a fallen world. He's given us gifts together to promote growth in the gospel, to stand alongside one another as we struggle with suffering and sin. And we do this in the world. We do it alongside neighbors and coworkers and family members and friends who can all see what the gospel does to this wonderfully different group of people. I want to encourage you this week to spend time reading what I think is a non-exhaustive list of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. Remember the twelves and the fours. 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. In each of those four chapters, you'll find, again, a non-exhaustive list of gifts that Jesus gives to the church. And I would encourage you to read this with a friend and ask the question, how am I serving my local church at Cherrydale? Teens and children, this goes for you too. Because if you're a Christian 
And what I mean by that is not you grew up in a Christian home or your parents are Christians. I mean, if you are a Christian, if you have turned from sin to walk and trust, walk with and trust Christ, then you are Christian and Jesus has therefore given you gifts. And these gifts are meant, as we'll see in a moment, to serve. It could be gifts of wisdom and discernment or generosity and service or teaching and leadership or mercy and exhortation, etc., etc., etc. And then I urge you not only to think about those gifts, but to exercise those gifts, to break a sweat stewarding and wielding and investing the gifts that Jesus has given you to build up the body of Christ. Don't sit on the sidelines watching the game because as we'll see in a moment, each and every member is responsible to build up the body. And in fact, the body only works properly when every single, each and every member is exercising the gifts that Christ gave us collectively. Exercise the gifts that Christ has given you. That's one way with Jesus' strength that we serve together as an unwavering body. Secondly, fulfill the ministry that's before us. This is verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 11. And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Fulfill the ministry that's before us. Now, I expect Paul to be more specific. I expect him to say, elders, your job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But Paul's approach is broader than that. It would seem that Paul is aiming at leaders more broadly in a local church. Now, we could spend a lot of time trying to carefully define each group that's here, but I don't think that's what's most important and at the forefront of Paul's mind. The thrust of his argument seems more focused on what this group of leaders does than who this group of leaders is. This group of leaders leads. Their responsibility is to proclaim and protect the gospel, to equip and disciple the church. And while this responsibility is finally shouldered by the elders in a local church, it is really a job for all leaders in the church. Notice again what he says in verse 12. The job of these leaders is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Equipping is about preparing. A coach in practice equips players so they know how to play on the court. A boss equips employees so they excel at their work. A parent equips children to know what to expect out of life. Equipping includes preparation. It includes the flow of information. It includes training and practicing and modeling. And this leadership group in a local church is responsible to equip the saints, that is, all Christians, to do the work of ministry. And Paul hasn't told us yet what the work of ministry is. But what we know at this point is that leaders are supposed to equip the saints to do it. Therefore, leaders have two jobs at one time. Leaders are first Christians in local churches who do the work of ministry, and leaders are leaders set aside to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. So take elders as an example. Before elders are elders, they are Christians and members of local churches. And then that local church sets those men aside to do the work of eldering. And as elders live alongside other Christians in local churches, 
they formally and informally equip the church. Formal equipping is what's more visible. It happens as elders and other male and female leaders instruct and teach and guide and lead in environments like this. Informal equipping happens as elders and other leaders live Christian lives alongside other Christians. Because though leaders aren't perfect, leaders should live Christian lives that can be an example to other Christians around them. You watch leaders not only teach, but you might watch them raise a family or live a life of singular devotion to Jesus. You might watch them correct their children or take care of their homes or show up on time to meetings or to use their words to encourage or to walk through difficult trials or to live within their means or to prioritize their time or to make sacrifices for the people around them or to take risks to share the gospel, to give sacrificially, to extend hospitality, to work faithfully in their jobs, to keep their word, to be kind to their neighbors, to forgive others, to pray without ceasing, to devote themselves to the word, and to depend upon the spirit in prayer. So much of the Christian life is caught. And one reason we attempt to keep a simplified church calendar is because we want to leave time for friendships, for these kinds of friendships, for the lives of Christians to overlap with one another so that this kind of informal equipping can occur. Here's what it looks like to apply the gospel. Here's what it looks like to live as a Christian right now, right now in this place. And it's why we love having lay elders, elders who work another job during the day and elder on the nights and weekends. Five pastors can't spend this relational time with everyone, but you add in 10 lay elders and the ability for this kind of equipping happens, it multiplies. And when other leaders, male and female, in the life of a local church are intent on equipping others to follow Christ, our ability to do this multiplies. The point in this second point is this. We have a job to do. There's a ministry that's before us. There's a purpose for which God saved us. And in the strategic macro sense, that job is to make disciples of all nations, evangelizing the lost and discipling the found. And in a tactical sense, that job is to lovingly build relationships, to winsomely share the gospel, to baptize new Christians, and to teach one another to obey all that Christ commanded. And he calls all of us to fulfill the ministry that's before us. If you're a leader... If you're a leader in our church family, make sure that you're investing time to equip and to prepare other people around you to follow Christ. And all of us need to take time to be equipped. And that starts on Sunday mornings as we gather in a variety of ways. But we don't just eat one meal a week. Feed your body daily and throughout the day. Open the word for yourself and feast upon God's truth about who he is. Consider joining a life group or a Bible study. Meet up with other Christians to study the word or read a good Christian book. Spend this kind of relational time together thinking through what it looks like to follow Jesus in the world. Be equipped to know what God longs for and be that thing in the world as Jesus strengthens us. Here's the third task. Resist the immaturity that threatens us. With Jesus as our head, strengthening the church, 
resist the immaturity that threatens us. We live our lives as ambassadors for Christ in a foreign land. And together, we ambassadors form an embassy. We live together in a foreign land, but we belong to our home country. We're part of an eternal, invisible kingdom. And we live in the world representing the kingdom to which we belong. And we invite our neighbors by our words and by our lives to join us. We show them the hope that we found in Christ. But that's not going to be easy because our enemy Satan has entrapped hearts and blinded minds just as he has in the past entrapped the hearts of Christians and blinded the eyes of Christians. And so we must contend to be faithful representatives. We must strive to resist being marked by the world around us, but to be marked by the love and righteousness of God, to resist the immaturity that threatens us, ease and laziness and apathy and faithlessness. Paul holds up for us a body that is growing and maturing. Look at verse 13. We do this. We equip the saints for the work of ministry, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. For a church to be unwavering, it needs to be growing. We need to do the work of ministry until we reach maturity. The work of the church among one another is a work that continues until we all attain to the unity of the faith, until we all reach full knowledge of the Son of God, until we reach mature manhood, until we experience all of Jesus, until we start to look like Him, have His stature, and measure up to Him in some degree. Like a young adult woman who begins to look like her godly mother, like a young adult man who now bears the resemblance of his upright father. We do the work of ministry onto maturity. We fulfill the ministry in our midst until we look like Christ. And this work won't be completed until he calls us home or returns for his bride. But with increasing accuracy, we look more and more like Christ together year after year. But it's not a given that that will occur. We need Christ to strengthen us for this task. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by, human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. There is a threat, Paul says, to our maturity, a danger that we may look more like the world than we do like Christ. There is a danger that we may think more like the world than Christ. And there's a danger that we may act more like the world than Christ. And Paul says, don't be like children at the beach who because of their smaller size and weight are tossed around by the waves. Two specific threats that Paul mentions, false doctrine and false teachers. Be on the alert against every wind of doctrine and be aware of human cunning and craftiness. Paul reminds us that we have an enemy who seeks to destroy the church. Satan is a liar. He lied to Eve in the garden. This is what he always does. He deceives, he spins, he covers, he distracts us from the truth. And we have to understand that contending for truth is vital 
to an unwavering local church. That fighting and contending for the truth is vital to an unwavering local church. We've got to pay attention to the subtle ways that Satan distorts the truth in the world around us. Yes, there are frontal assaults to the truth, like God does not exist. But there are far subtler lies that our enemy spreads. Subtle ways that he tempts us to take on the role of creator, insisting on our own distinctions and definitions and feelings of the truth. Subtle ways that he tempts us to take on the role of judge, determining our own sense of what is right and what is wrong. We have an enemy, Paul says, that tries to lull the church to sleep, and an unwavering local church has to resist these threats. How? Build up the body that's among us, verses 15 and 16. The work of ministry, as we'll see, is the work of speaking the truth in love. Look at verse 15. Rather... So not being tossed around, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Here now we see what the work of ministry is. The work of ministry is speaking the truth in love. Well, what is the truth? What is the truth that Paul has in mind that we should be speaking? Well, it seems to be the opposite of verse 14. Every wind of doctrine, human cunning, and deceitful schemes— Don't be tossed around by verse 14. Don't be tossed around by false doctrine, but speak the truth in love. Speak the Bible. Proclaim sound doctrine. Herald the promises of God. Explain the commands of God. Unfold the heart of God. Declare the purposes of God. Announce the plans of God. The command, notice, is not to speak the truth. The command is to speak the truth in love. We're not called here to shout the truth. We don't speak the truth to make a point or to bully or coerce or to get something off of our chest. We speak the truth in love. We speak the truth while we feel love in our hearts, committed, sacrificial love. We speak the truth while we feel those things in our hearts. And we speak the truth lovingly, which is about tone and content. And the higher the stakes of the moment, the more prayerful our preparation is wise. God, help me to speak the truth with love in my heart for this person. Help me to say this in the most loving way possible. Keep me humble and keep me clear. Help me offend as little as necessary. How can I say this hard thing in a way that's most likely to be heard by this other person. And what's the result of this kind of truth speaking in love? Verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into Christ who is the head. This is how we grow. This is how we mature. This is how we're not tossed around by the wind and the waves. We speak God's truth to one another in love. And this is why an unwavering church stands confidently upon God's Word. It's why an unwavering church builds and organizes around the ministry of the Word. And so we preach the Bible, enjoy it, read it, study it, treasure it. And the Bible fills our songs and our prayers. And the Bible's truth guides our decisions and actions and emotions. And this is not just something that leaders do. 
This is a call for every member. Look at verse 16. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it's built up in love. In verse 7, we read that Jesus gave gifts to each person. Though we are one body, he's given individual gifts. And here we see that the one body, in the one body, every joint and each part makes the body grow up. Every member of the body works together to ensure that the body is being built up in love and reaching maturity. So let's dispense with the metaphor for a moment. A church should be an unwavering presence in the world. Jesus supplies his strength to make sure that this happens. Jesus puts his shoulder underneath us and carries us along to do the job that he's given us. Jesus gives each member of a local church gifts, and Jesus calls leaders to equip the church to use those gifts. And a church can grow toward maturity, resisting the temptation to lethargy or distraction or sin. A church can build itself up in love by speaking God's word to one another. Speaking the truth is the work of ministry. And the work of ministry is what promotes growth in a church. And speaking the truth in love is the job of every single church member. That's true in Ephesus, where Jew and Gentile with different customs and backgrounds and worldviews are brought together. And they have to answer hard questions. Because they're unified together in order to grow up together into maturity so that they in Ephesus might be an unwavering local church as they speak God's truth to one another. So how do these Jews and Gentiles from different backgrounds get on the same page? How do they stay agreed on the essentials? How do they help each other persevere through hard things? How do they speak the truth in love? Let's get practical here before we finish. You might think about this as proactive and reactive. We speak the truth in love proactively or formatively and reactively or correctively. We want to proactively and formatively speak the truth in love to one another. We want to disciple and teach and instruct. Before the storms come into each other's lives, we want to form the gospel in each other's hearts. We want to make sure that we are prepared to meet the challenges of life in a fallen world. Here are some examples. Bill wants to prepare his children to follow Christ in a world that he knows will include significant trials. And so he plans to read the Bible to his kids each night at dinner. And he plans to read Christian biographies so that they have stories of people in their minds as they walk through the challenges of life in a world that's been broken by sin. He's forming them in the Word. Sarah gets up early each day to study the Bible before the responsibilities of her day descend upon her shoulders. And she carves out this time each day because she knows that each week she gathers with others to study God's Word. Gary makes sure that he's in church each week to worship with his family. He's there because He believes and he understands how much singing and fellowshipping and teaching and preaching strengthen his heart for another week in the world. He's allowing his heart to be formed in God's truth. 
Sam is in sixth grade, and he already feels how critical the Bible is to his ability to follow Christ. Most of his friends don't think that God is real. Most of them just think his faith is strange, but some of them make fun of him for how he treasures Christ. But when Sam reads the Bible, he feels this inexplainable hope and confidence rise in his heart that strengthens him for each day he goes off to school. To be an unwavering body strengthened by Jesus, we need to build disciplines that pro- to proactively let the Spirit build our lives in the Word in community, to let the Bible anchor and direct our hearts in this world. We also want to be reactively or correctively speaking the truth in love. We don't just speak before the trials. Sometimes we speak after the trials. After the storms come into each other's lives, we speak the truth in love. We're delivering comfort or hope or correction and challenge as we share truth from the Bible in love. And so Debbie, when she sees her husband Phil losing hope, as his battle with cancer grows more grim, she takes his face in her hands, she looks her husband in the eyes, and she says, Phil, who is a rock like our God? Who is a rock like our God? Phil, this God, his way is perfect. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. We speak God's word correctively when the people around us sometimes need the comfort and hope of reminders of who God is and what he's doing in our lives. Or Greg, who sees his friend Doug grow more and more comfortable with sin patterns in his life. There just doesn't seem to be any fight in his heart anymore. And so Greg, with a bit of anxiety, picks up the phone and he calls Doug and he affirms his love for him and he shares his observations. Doug, here's what I'm seeing. Here are three examples of what I've seen over the last two months. And I'm concerned. And then he shares Ephesians 5 verse 8. He says, Doug, the reason I'm concerned is because at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Life in our world is disorienting and it's distracting and it's deceptive. And we need one another's help to gain the perspective. Use the word in one another's lives. Be easy to correct. I mean, invite people around you to correct you. Make sure that they know that you are committed to receiving correction that you want them to come, that you want the help to see what you know you're going to be blind to see. The easier you make it on the people around you, the more likely they'll be to take the risk to speak the truth in love. And even when you don't have the invitation, Paul's already given it to you. Be courageous to confront others with humility and with gentleness, but with clarity and with love. Let's make this speaking the truth in love a normal part, whether it's forming each other in the word or correcting each other with the word. Living as a Christian without a church family is like a hand trying to live on its own. It can't be done. Jesus asks the church to represent him in the world, making disciples of every nation, and it cannot be done with one member of the body out on its own. We need each other. 
And Jesus gave us each other, and he's given us gifts to help us build up one another in love. But a church without the strength of Jesus is helpless. If we were to walk out of here and say, here are the four things we must do to be unwavering, then we will fail. We need Jesus to strengthen us. We need to be connected to our head. We need to understand that all we have and all we are and all the power that flows through us comes through Christ's work on our behalf as his spirit, as his helper, takes the truth and the power of the gospel and enlivens our heart. A church strengthened by Jesus can be an unwavering body. Exercise the gifts that Jesus gave us. Fulfill the ministry that's before us. Resist the immaturity that threatens us. Build up the body that's among us. But you know what? One day, the struggle to be unwavering will fade. This will not be a struggle forever. We will experience Jesus' perfect, eternal victory, and we will be perfectly unwavering in His sight. Lord Jesus, thank You for all that You've done to not only rescue us from our sin, but to give gifts to Your people, to send Your Spirit armed with gifts for Your church to guarantee the work that You left for us. I pray that you would help each and every member of our church to press toward the center, to use the gifts that you've given them to build up this body, to speak your truth in love with confidence. We pray these things in your name. Amen.